Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 87. As always, my name is Mark. Here with me today, designer of Magnate the First City in the upcoming recently announced, correct me if I'm wrong about this, uh, <laughs> board games, the board game, parentheses, the card game, uh, James Naylor. Spot on. Absolutely correct. <laughs> uh, you got that absolutely correct. Most people so far haven't, and it makes me feel like I've maybe made a terrible mistake in calling the game that. Uh, just because people say, yeah, the, the board game, 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 card game. I'm like, yeah, it's not, that's not quite it. But um, but yes, you've got it absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for coming on the podcast, James. I, I, I loved Magnate uh, as people who read my reviews on the website know because I reviewed it. And uh, I'm excited to see this upcoming game with its uh, tongue-in-cheek tone. I, I think it'll be very fun. Thank so, you very much. So let's start with uh i guess the beginning as i do with most people i have on the podcast what got you into board gaming so well i think probably my story is quite similar to a lot of people's in the sense that it probably began in quite early childhood being really into games uh playing all sorts of board games all the family classics that probably most of us don't really play very much anymore you know things like monopoly cluedo all those all those kind of things probably into the mix slightly less usually it would be a 1974 game called kingmaker as well, which I don't know if you've ever played, but is a sort of actually incredibly thematic recreation of the Wars of the Roses and is uh, insanely complicated, ridiculously heavy. And so my dad definitely played a very cut down version with my six year old self of that game, uh, mostly just for the, the fun and the fun and frivolity of like giving your different noblemen uh, accurate 14th and 15th century offices of state that sort of thing, which is just like tremendously fun. Um, so I started there. I used to make quite a lot of games as a child. And then to be honest, uh, I think like a lot of teenagers picked with my vintage, I guess, uh, I kind of completely got out of board games. But I rediscovered them again at university. And uh, a friend of mine, Ed, he, he kind of, he started playing a few things recently, like he played recently played Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, all of what we think of today as those kind of classic gateways. And um, he was like, oh, yeah, these games are really good. You should, you should come around and play some. And I did. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is really great. And I was starting to enjoy some of these things. And we went to the little tiny uh, board game store, which I hope is still there in, in Oxford, just along the Cowley Road. And they had a copy of what, what this point was called Railroad Tycoon by Martin Wallace, which would, I think, later be called Railways of the World because they lost the license for the Railroad Tycoon branding. And I saw this beautiful, massive box. And I was like, oh my God, this game looks amazing. Picked it up, felt the incredible weight of it and was just looked at the back and went, oh. I mean, I love trains. So I was like building trains across America and in this like epic box with this huge box. This looks really cool. I bought it then and there having no idea whether it would be great. Opened it up, played it with Ed, played it for like six hours solid, multiple games and loved it. And I think from that point forward, that was where I was like hooked again was like this sudden realization that there were all these amazing games out there that were so much better than the ones I'd seen, with so much richness, that that's kind of really what, what got, its, got its teeth into me again, I think. Yeah, and, and, and of hobbies to have uh, that would translate into board gaming, trains, uh, you certainly got a lot of options there in the board gaming world. Yeah, exactly. Something like, I only really d discovered later, actually. Yeah, like I love train games, but I couldn't care less about trains. They're... <laughs> I don't even think about trains at all, except in the context of train games. But yeah, if you're into trains, there are a lot of games about them. So many. 
so so many so many and that was kind of like i think it's a it's a uh, i guess that it's an interesting thing isn't it about themes it's like it's like there's different ways that people are onboarded and for me that would definitely be the way in it's like i wouldn't have naturally thought that train games on their own were especially interesting genre uh not really at this point having any way to like conceptualize why that probably would be right which is because because we know that like root building and networks are such a rich area of game design so it's, it's so, so that i could now say that but certainly in myself at the time wouldn't have even thought in those terms and just just having this game is like oh i like trains this is a train game great and it looks it looks like it's like it's a really epic scope game as well like it's gonna have which really impressed me i think so yeah and i think that probably became my favorite game probably and probably still there ever i think is probably that game I, I probably played that not as much as some things i've played more recently but i've got to be in my top five all-time plays i'd say and then from that point how long i assume at that point you 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 do your research and discover there's this whole world of board games and dive right in and uh from that point how long does it take to where you're like wait what, maybe i could design one of these things i think that's about three years three or four years because i think one of the things that I tend to do, I think in general, is the moment I really enjoy a medium of some kind, I am immediately determined to make something of it. So whether that be poetry, writing, filmmaking, all things at different points I've loved, which I've immediately thought, right, I love that. So I guess I better make one, pretty much. Um, there's like very few creative fields that I've enjoyed where I've not instantly wanted to also create in the field as well as in as well as consume so for me it came pretty quickly and i think probably i was working on some of my first game designs yeah it must have been within three years that was 2007 probably so that would have been about by about 2010 i was starting to design 20 2009 2010 i was designing loads of things and i think that the first games i made was i wanted to make a board game based on because i obviously love long titles which was the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford because i figured there'd be like a great like uh, asym asymmetric potential thing going on there with like maybe if the police manage to get someone who they corrupt who's near your character they would they would obviously your 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 if you're near the jesse james piece on his own he'd get killed and you'd win the game something like that so i, I don't know what happened i think it's in a book somewhere my designs for that i, don't, I haven't re returned to that one a long time but that was one of my first ones and then by 2011 i had written the first draft of the rules of magnate so uh which so that came within about four years of me getting back into it really wow and magnate right now what is it's almost shipping is that the status of it yeah, so uh, it's it's this absolutely frust very frustrating stage where it's I'm basically it's all sitting in a warehouse in Ningbo in China, and we are literally just waiting to find out if we can even get space on a ship, even at the eye-watering costs at the moment of shipping, if we can get space on that ship at all. And I and I was told that the ship ain't you know destined for the UK and then almost the EU was supposed to be leaving today. I was told that the U.S. ship would be leaving on uh, Monday, so I. But I just don't know yet. I'm. I'm apparently. I'm going to find out next week as to whether or not it's actually gone with the goods on or not. So, um, it's like constant. Like, please, just, just yeah. please deliver them. I just want them to leave China and get on their way. Um. So that yeah, that's where we are right now. Yeah, I mean the 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 supply chain issues I've seen in terms of yeah cost or just no space at all have been truly harrowing. I, I would not want to be a publisher right now. So I feel for you. Yeah, it's it's brutal. It was one of these things where it was like, I think we, we did very well because we've already done, we've already signed quite a lot of deals in terms of retail. So we were pretty confident that it was looking like it was going to be actually a profitable project or on, on the first print run, which is which I'd be very pleased with. But the shipping cost has just completely nuked that. 
Like it's gone from being, oh, this is looking pretty good. Actually, I'm quite happy with this financially as, as well as, you know, critically and in terms of the audience interest. And then like, oh, no, no, not with the not with the shipping cost increases. No. But, you know, these things unfortunately do happen. Yeah. So what was the impetus for that design? What what started you on the road to designing Magnate? So I think for me, I had this sort of feeling that I really, really wanted to make the Euro game monopoly. That was like very much like what what was driving the initial thought. And at the same time, in the background, the context of it is that I had been spending a lot of time learning a lot about property. And that's because very weirdly, one of the things that I've done as a, a brief job was doing walking tours of my hometown in Croydon and particularly to developers, in fact. So there's their big uh, shopping center developer, international company called Westfield. And they looked to develop part of the center of my, my hometown in Croydon into this sort of massive mega mall. And they wanted a tour from me to understand the local area better. So I actually gave their whole team a whole tour of the town. And sort of through that process and spending a lot of time talking to different property developers, because there was a lot of property development going on in Croydon at that time, it kind of created this really interesting or informed this whole interesting thing about the way that property works that made me think there's like a lot about this industry which is rarely reflected in property games to the extent where there were things in property games which I found quite thematically kind of almost frustrating that I didn't see them reflected in games. So things like the classic uh, building games tend to have this sort of stacking element where, you know, you build the building higher gradually. And I'm like, well, if there's one thing about how buildings work, it's that you don't upgrade them, right? That's not how they work. That they, they, you know, you knock them down, you replace them, and the fact they have different types was it was really important to me because part of this whole property thing I've been studying was about how how developers look for sites. You know, what is a good site or is not a good site to develop on, and uh, what they're look, thinking about are things like, okay, what are local amenities like? How well is it connected to a labour force? This kind of question. I thought, oh my god, this 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 would fit. A, a kind of a, a Euro-ish kind of economic game really well and in, and in a very natural way that could potentially be quite commercial as well because people love building things. So it was really all of those kind of things came together in my head at once and it just sort of like obviously was bubbling away in the background for a long time and it just suddenly all sort of rushed in into one one vision pretty much straight away after that. Interesting that you say it was like you want to make like a Euro game monopoly because I mean... Other than the fact that it's about property, there's <laughs> no similarity there at all. Were there other games that inspired you in that design? What I would say is actually, I think there is a bit more of a similarity, I would say. So the similarities, I would say, however, are like purely experiential rather than mechanical. So in the sense that uh, for me, part of the design process was, well, okay, what are the bits about Monopoly that people like? Right, and they what do they think they like about what what's what what are the feel good moments of Monopoly? The feel good moments are getting cash in your hands, right, and collecting collecting money. Um, it would be uh, a feeling of like the dice rolling where it's going to be like, oh, am I going to get that? Am I not going to get that? Am I going to get the thing I want? And it was things like the, the 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 fact that you buy a site and then you develop it somehow that you just build on a site. It's like these really like basic emotional cues that I mm -hmm. felt like I wanted to bring into it. But you're right that mechanically basically nothing in common with Monopoly at all. So I would say my biggest influences from that side of things come from a lot more in terms of design from particularly Martin Wallace. I think that's probably, he's probably quite a big influence. If you look at like Railroad Tycoon, you look at the way that the turn order structure works and the act, the way actions work in that game. Both of those were probably fairly similar. I think they're fairly similar to, to, to that. And they're very much clearly a strong inspiration. One of those ones that I only realized later, like looking back at it, I was like, oh my God, they totally got that action system from from that. 
And then I was like, but you know what? It works. So that's fine. That's great. So I think that was probably an influence. In terms of other more conscious influences on the game, it's difficult to like pick them out, I think, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I feel like it very much came from probably a whole variety of different sources of of, of things. Yeah. Um, I, maybe I there's see, an element of, yeah. Tile land games, the spatial sure, interaction yeah, yeah. probably. Yeah, I see the Martin Wallace uh, influence, especially in the importance of turn order in, in your game. Mm. Uh, turn order is super important. Either Martin Wallace games or Power Grid come, came to mind for me when I was playing it, where it, especially like in the middle of the game, like it yeah. almost becomes a game about turn order. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that, uh, that, that, that goes from being, it doesn't seem like, especially to new players, particularly important at all at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, until you get to a level where you start becoming really ruthless about, oh, that's clearly the best plot of land. Yeah, and then you're right, it does become a bit like a game a game about turn order because it becomes so absolutely critical and to the, to the point where, particularly in like two-player games, if you're facing down someone at the end and you're getting these absolutely absurd bids that sometimes can be correct, where you're like, I think the correct number is something like 7 million and you're like thinking that earlier in the game, this just feels like insane, the idea that that would be oh, a yeah. correct bid. And yeah, it could be. Yeah, for sure. And then I've got to talk about the the big, I, I wouldn't say twist, but like something you don't see a lot in board games that is is in Magnate, which is this end of game, almost binary trigger where you're either going to be in the running or you lose completely. And that's yeah, the, that's the market crash, which I think I've only ever seen something like that in one other game that I can think of. Um, that's Escape Plan from uh, Vitalis Cerda has a oh yeah. Thing. yeah 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 it does doesn't it yeah with the with the whole end section where you like whether or not you can get out of the city or not mm -hmm. at the end yeah yeah and a lot of people you know talk about that as being like a really risky move but I think it's thrilling right oh like, thank you I think it's absolutely thrilling in that you're trying to push the margins as far as possible but also predict what other people are going to do and try to get on the right side of the crash, you know, sell off your properties before the value plummets. Uh, was that part of the design from the beginning or is that something that came as you were developing the game? So that's a really interesting one. I would say that the crash itself as a concept was very much in it from the very beginning. And I would say actually one of the interesting things about it from the 2000, October 2011 version, so it will be coming up to nearly a decade since the very, very first version of the design. While there's been an enormous amount of refinement and some strict bits that have just been chopped off and improved very substantially, the kind of bones of the game and the core set of ideas are actually very similar. They didn't change very much. So the idea there would be a crash and that that would dictate the end of the game was absolutely critical from day one. Because for me, and it had to be this combination of somewhat influenced by players, somewhat out of control of by players, so it could act function as a game clock with this chance element and also informing player decisions. And so that, that was very much in it from the very beginning because I, I felt like it would be the ultimate thing to give it a real sense of arc would be like, well, what, what, again, thematically, naturally, what do people think about when they think about a property bubble? They like, they think, well, at some point there's a big crash and everyone gets burned. I'm like, well, of course, in which case then, if you're going to make a game of a property bubble, you've got to have a big crash because otherwise it's like, you're not giving people the, the, the you know, the, the, the story they're expecting. So yeah, I would just say, regardless of, yeah, I, I just sort of kept, I kept having a go at it. And the problem was though, the actual implementation took absolutely forever. That was the single most difficult thing about the entire game development process, was getting that crash implementation correct. It was brutally difficult. I must have tried something like 10 different discrete versions of it that all work completely differently. We even took it on the, on the campaign trail, taking it around to conventions, even while we were still changing that. So um, originally it was like dice driven, 
had similar kind of concepts, but it was like very, very different in terms of how it operated. Um, and actually, we had discovered only, I think at 2019 UKGE, only two weeks before it, we had discovered that I was finding it really hard to balance it. We kept having this problem where either the game would end way too quickly or way too late. And it seemed to be no amount of twig, twig it, of, of, or there was a risk that would happen. No amount of tinkering would seem to fix it. And I was like, well, wh why can't we just work out what the numbers need to be to make this not always go too far or always go too less or, or, or do that at least 20% of the time? And we had to, it was really, this is the first time I've ever done this and it was a very strange development process. We ended up realizing that the, perhaps there was, we had this intuition that there was actually a conceptual problem deep in the heart of the design. That was like a mathematical problem. I certainly speculated. I wonder if what we want to do is actually logically impossible with the set of variables that we have. So to test this, we then created a, a dummy version of Magnate that was like a stripped down version with like very, very low integers for everything that was just the crash on its own. And then we, we because the, none of my team are like, uh, except for one guy I've got doing working for me now, none of the team is like really mathematicians or statisticians. So we had to kind of spend a lot of time, myself and Jaya, working this through. And when we create this kind of model version of the game, which I think we just could nicknamed Swagnate, I think for some reason, just to help <laughs> us to, to, to work this out, we suddenly realized like, oh God, if you have a moving crash determining item and you have a moving property price, because at this point in the mechanic, they still could both move independently of each other. Ah. Um, or rather they, they were independent, but they were joined. So they were on the same track. So you crashed if the property price marker passed the crash marker on the same track. If you could move both those things independently, then with the variables that we had, it was impossible to make something that could fall in a predictable range. And it was like, it was mathematically impossible. And it took us doing that to realize that. And I was like, oh God, no wonder this has been such a painful process. And, and the fix was, well, what we have to do is we have to just, do we have to tear them apart and we have to make them two tracks. Because if we do that, we can actually control it. And then we did the maths on it and we were like, right, when you do all the simulate or the kind of simulations, I've got a guy who could help me with that. And you do that, you can make all the games basically always never end before X turns and always end by X turns. And that became the crucial bit of the design. So um, it was a long road to get there. And it was something that was, yeah, really tough as nails to do. But I think it paid off. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. I, that's That's actually really interesting that you had to dig into the math there. Yeah, because looking back after having played the game a few times, right, it's it's all exponential. So yeah. the rate at which the crash is coming increases really quick towards the end of the game. And then it quickly be, becomes clear. It's like, oh, man, it's going to happen either this round or next, right? And it's it becomes that simple yeah. of a prediction of, like, is it going to fall just short this round and we're going to have one more? Or is it going to trigger now? And then, of course, how everyone else has that same calculation and then their decisions based on that calculation affect when it's yeah. going to happen which uh is is a wonderful bit of game design because it almost i don't want to say it harkens back to like an older era of euros but you see a lot mm. more euros i think nowadays where player interaction is there's not a lot of it and it's relatively passive it's mm. small blocking or it's taking the card that they might want uh, and i love lots of those games but man sometimes you can go back to those like early 2000s or late 90s euros and boy they're mean and yeah. uh i i got that when i played magname like oh yeah this is like when i played container last month 
Yeah. Uh, which is another yeah. really mean Euro from the early 2000s, I think. And it's, it's actually realizing this has caused me to think about Euro games as, in different, like to, to split apart the category of Euro games into like these, what I call Baroque Euros, which are all about working with the mechanisms. And there's lots of yeah. interlocking gear mechanisms. And then what I call the, the economic Euros, which are like, like magnate, like uh, container that are much more, or about those, like those Martin Wallace games, which are much more about interacting with the other players dramatically, yeah. which, yeah, I think it's, it's really, really cool because every decision you make has to be thought of in relationship with predicting what your opponents are going to do. Completely. And, and I think, I mean, that's actually, I think at first, I think that's a, that's a great way to separate them. I don't think I've heard that categorization ever made quite so crystal clear before. And actually hearing that, it's really interesting because I think, because I, I completely agree with you. I actually think that they are very different and that I, I feel a little bit like a lot of contemporary Euro design to me feels like it's it's all about sanding some of the rough edges off to make things slightly less stinky. And I'm like, well, but actually them being sharp and a bit painful and it's part of the thrill of it, right? Is that you can't have the the thrill unless you have some of this 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 indirect interaction. I think some of the reputation that more modern Euro games have got as being a bit like some people will say, oh, they're a bit boring because they're all they're a bit like oh it's all a bit passive. It's like, well, yeah, I think it's because of a more of a style of game rather than that broader genre, because it's it's very capable of some incredibly tense interactive things. You said particularly those games from the noughties that completely would have influenced me very heavily in terms of the mm -hmm. the thought process for Magnate. Um yeah, I mean, for me, I, we just wanted, I, I wanted to turn the indirect interaction up to the absolute max. You know, I, I didn't want anything where it was like, anything take that where it's like directly dicky. And in fact, even the way that you can use industry in the game to screw your opponents over, it only generally works highly contextually. So there might be a situation where, um, yes, you can screw someone. It can be useful to Terran in the sense that some people won't make decisions in case you might do it. But, but to go out of your way to do it in a site that isn't otherwise ideal for your industry, the game will punish you for that. Like it's not valuable enough, the amount it damages your opponents by to do that. So, which was by design. But I wanted all of those indirect economic interactions to be really, really substantial. Um, and I think, you know, about whether or not, particularly when you're playing with advanced tenants, you know, exactly which tenants you're going to get and, and how that might critically affect your plans. As you said, that crucial bit about the end where you can directly force an end to some extent by trying to be on the side of, particularly if you've got multiple players, piling all in versus rather than holding back for that next turn you know, cr critical to me, because that's that's what I'm there to do at game night. I, I want to have those kind of interactions, rich interactions with people. And and this, you know, this time when you're sometimes feeling like you just want something a bit relaxed that isn't going to have to push you too hard and you want something less intense than a kind of much less, more less interactive multiplayer solitaire game can be the right choice. But generally, given the given the option, you know, I'm going to pick something like that any day. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, personally, I, I enjoy both styles. I enjoy both mm. styles. How I see it is that, you know, with the Baroque Euro, the the enjoyment there is achieving mastery over a game system, right? A complex mm. game system. And it's about understanding the workings of that system and having mastery over it. Whereas uh, in the economic Euro, it's more about outwitting your opponents. And I can totally see why some people would strongly prefer one to another but i don't know I, mm. I like them both anyways all that to say i think if people like that other that economic style of euro that's much more interactive i think i think i think magnate's going to be uh, a good pick for them 
I really liked it. Fantastic. I, I must say, I mean, it was that's although, wonderful. It's also wonderful I, to hear that. Yeah. Although Sorry. I, I will say, uh, as uh, as a recommendation for those listening, I do think the game really opens up when you get the advanced tenants in. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm almost going to say that there is a way in which, for me, the advanced tenants is the real game. Because the reason we didn't do that is because I had always planned them from the start. They were very much where the game was going. In fact, in the original designs, they were the only way it was played. And then it was as we did the design process, I was like, you know what? We can make this game work without them. And the advantage of that will be that if we do, then actually we've got a brilliant onboard, more slightly better onboarding product in terms of getting people to play their first game. Because, you know, one thing that obviously, as you know, you're very much aware of, it was really cool reading in your review, is that, you know, it's a game of multiple chunky mechanical pieces there's quite a lot of big bits to learn some of which is quite different to other games so you want to minimize anything that's that remotely begins to feel like it's cool extra stuff that, that enhances the the same thing but more this is kind of how i felt in the design process to make sure that we do that so i so i stripped them out in the kind of basic game and we position them as advanced rules but actually i kind of expect 90 percent of players to, to quite swiftly move on to advanced tenants i think now in the tutorial deck which you've not seen yet which is in the production game really cool uh, we've done a really i'm really pleased with this with this tutorial deck it's a uh, deck of tarot cards that you just unseal when you open the box and it teaches you the whole game from beginning to end all you need to do is follow the setup pages in the rule book and then you never need to use the rule book again that's kind of the idea of it and the tutorial mode has worked very very well it teaches the game more effectively than we do uh, when we've tested it against us with people which i think is great is, is pretty cool and it even mentions the advanced tenants at the very end because I wanted to go like, oh, if you're ready to try something a bit different, you might want to consider these because actually I want players to get their head around things with the basic tenants and then pretty much onboard fast to the advanced tenants because, yeah, it adds, it adds so much. Yeah, so I'm curious. Are you framing it? I think the the version of the rulebook I had with with the prototype I had framed the advanced tenants as like a variant, like an advanced variant. Mm. Have you changed that framing? Because I know for me, there's, I, I perceive the advanced version of a game very, very different if it's like, do this on your first game and then implement this other stuff later on versus here's the game and also we have this advanced variant. I'm much, mm. much more or less likely to play that version of the game if it's like, oh, this is just a variation on what the real game is. I'm curious how, you, how you're going, how you frame that in the rules now. So it's a really interesting question. The way it's framed the rules now is probably a little bit more that uh, we would expect people to move on to the advanced tenants. It still says there are advanced rules at the end. What it says is it said, after you've played one or two games, we recommend that you'd like to try these ones out. Mm -hmm. and, and the same thing we do with the tutorial deck as well. The reason I've done that is partly because I felt that it was easier for the players to... For one of the kind of interesting things about Magnet is I, I kind of could be wrong about this, but I feel like its market potential is pretty broad in the long run. And the reason I think that is because I think it, it's, it uses a lot of familiar concepts, even amongst those pretty chunky, slightly different mechanics that make it, it and it's such an accessible theme that I think it has, has potential for quite a wide audience. And I didn't want that audience to instantly be made to feel like, oh, if you're not up to using the advanced tenant straight away, if you feel like, if you didn't feel like there wasn't already enough meat here and you're thinking, my God, there's already so much to this. I don't need any more. I didn't want to make them feel like, oh, but the real game is if you were a real aficionado, you'd immediately jump onto this. I wanted them to feel like if you never want to touch those advanced tenants, that's cool. 
because I know for a fact there's so much meat here anyway, you're still going to end up having, particularly, you know, there's lo so much space still to play in before you even begin to touch them. So I kind of felt like we went with this positioning them as advanced because I kind of know that any, because they're so short as well in, this, in the rule book, any slightly heavier gamer is going to go, well, I want to give those a go mm -hmm. straight away because they're going to pick up the pieces and they're going to look at them and go, oh, ones with different rental values and then and just and just and be like oh and they've got different bonuses like instantly they will just want to play with them there's going to be no i don't think anyone is going to go well no that's no i'm i you know i i, I happily play gaia project but those advanced talents i'm not sure they're for me kind of there's no risk of that happening in in kind of like is, is what i think so that's why we went with that avenue whether that proves to be overall the right positioning or not i don't know it might be well be that it's the, it's the wrong positioning and that we miss out on people just because they don't realize the extra depth is there. And it, it's also an interesting thing where the not using the advanced tenants is is, is a simpler game, just computationally, right? The advanced tenants just mm -hmm. adds more numbers to figure out. But it's a more deterministic game if you don't use them, which is like that Agricola effect. I don't know if you've ever played Agricola on the like the basic rules without any of the ad advanced stuff. Or have you played Agricola I at all? I think... I have played it. God, it was many years ago since I last played yeah. it, and I can't remember, to be honest with you, for the life, life of me, which one it was. I was playing actually with my with my friend Ed, who kind of got me into games, and I suspect we played the advanced ones just because uh, he would probably start us off with those rather than yeah, going yeah. straight into the kind of a special basic mode. So probably, so unfortunately, I, I couldn't in my mind de delineate the two at the moment. Yeah, because in uh, the Agricola, like I think they even call it like the family rules right it takes yeah. away a bunch of the complexity but it's like five times more brutal <laughs> <laughs> it's so much more cutthroat and i don't think magnates like that but i think it may be a little bit more cutthroat without the without the advanced tenets just well, because it's more deterministic like you can calculate more precisely you're so right. It does actually get to that point very quickly where it does become more deterministic. And and I think it's a slightly more deterministic anyway. I think the key thing is that the advanced rules do, as you said, add a lot more nuance. And actually, uh, interestingly, with the AI mode, it presents itself as a bit of a problem, actually. So which is that if players play, interestingly enough, the AI without the advanced tenants, it's actually harder than with the advanced tenants. So I had to make that a note in the solo rules because we were like, I, we were playing it. We're like, oh, no. Like, because the AI in, in Magnate wins every time it gets tenants, it just rolls sixes constantly. Just that's how that's how its rules work. Means that it's you've got to really play so perfectly to beat it if you're playing on quite a hard difficulty. Because there's a, there's a set to set a different difficulty on in, in the AI that are basically just the amount it makes from some sales. It just has a kind of either a bonus or a penalty to um, the points value it makes when it sells a building. And on the harder difficulties, you have to play 100% right, or you make a single mistake, you lose. Um, but with the advanced tenants, what gets interesting is because its algorithm for dealing with advanced tenants is by its nature a bit more, much more simplistic than what a human being can do, actually gets a bit easier when you play with advanced versus versus basic. So yeah, it does it does it does introduce some slight challenges on that front. And I think you're right. I think particularly if if people say played five games on basic against each other, it would start manifesting itself as more brutal, precisely because there is that more deterministic element where you have to get the calculation completely correct. Magnate's your first design you've published, right? Yeah. I'm curious what that experience was like in terms of you got this game, you're ready to publish it, you go through the whole Kickstarter process. What was that like? Well, 
I mean, it was an experience and it still is. It's it's ongoing uh, an experience. I think it's been tremendously challenging in many ways to do it this way. I think everyone says, you know, you do Kickstarter, publish your first game. What you want to do is something like a like a light card game, right? You can learn the ropes, do the stuff, whatever. But the reality is there were no light card games I wanted to make. Uh, and actually, when I started making this, it was like, well, this is a bucket list thing for me. Even if we, I don't take this any further, I desperately want this game to be out there in the wild and, get, and, and to be published. I'm also someone who I thought two things. Number one, I have probably quite a lot of skills to do it. And number two, I don't think I'd be very interested in sending it to a publisher who would then spend a lot. I'd just be tr I'd be pounding the pavements for a lot. A lot of smaller publishers would look at it and go, "Oh my god, this game, this is too many components. We we can't we can't do this. Like especially not with the first time designer. Or even if they had done, they probably wouldn't make like, loads of changes. They'd be like, "Well, I think maybe you just take this bit out." Or I can just imagine someone saying, "Yeah, the crash bit's a bit mean. Maybe you want to soften this bit." And I'd be like, "I don't want to soften that bit. I want it to be really dramatic." Like, um, and I just felt, you know what? I've got, you know, I work in product management. That was my job at the time. I ran the product department of an advertising company. Why don't I just do this myself? So uh, set about the process of just doing absolutely everything, I guess, uh, bringing on people to help me out in terms of art and development. And in the end, we built quite a big team. I, as I sometimes joked, I think when I first put the rule book together, I think compared to some games, the, the credits look a bit like the credits to a Marvel movie. They're just a bit like, they're like scrolling by all the people, like there's like nine different artists involved in the process or something like that between different 3D sculptors and um, graphic designers and multiple illustrators. It's been an incredible process. I, uh, at different points, so for the last year, I've been full-time on Nader Games. And before that, there were, there were periods of two or three months, uh, a couple of periods of two or three months where I did nothing else but this, because actually the amount of work required to play test it to, an, to a very substantial degree, uh, develop all of the artwork and bring the whole thing to life as a physical product, the manufacturing side of it uh, and um, the marketing, just getting it marketed and out there and launching it on Kickstarter, have a nice initially successful first time Kickstarter for, for a complex game. So much work. I, 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 if I, when I see anyone else make a heavy game in their part -time, spare time and publish it themselves, I'm just like, whoa, I'm in awe. <laughs> Because I'm just like the time needed to do this is to, to a high standard is, is is very substantial. So it's been well, it's been one hell of a journey. At times, quite painful, but also one very rewarding. Like it, it made me realize that there's much more of the publishing process that I enjoy than don't enjoy. So overall, for me, I think it has proven to be to be the right thing, and why I've carried on doing it when it really was just a bucket list item to begin with. It sort of morphed into this business because. I was like, well, you know what? I really enjoy this. And if this is going well, then why not keep pursuing it? Because it's a pretty cool job if that you get that gets to be your job. So, yeah. Let's move now to the next game, the one you just announced, board games, the yes. board game, the card game. Yes. Uh, which, uh, again, I, I, I love that title <laughs> so Thank you. Much. Thank you. Thank I couldn't you. believe. I'd always thought of, like, you know, what if you made a board game about board games and you called a board game the board game? Then I, I looked on Twitter. I'm like, <laughs> they did it. Someone finally did it. <laughs> and not only did they do it, they gave it the real title it deserves. Yes, exactly. Board games, the board game. Brackets, the card game. Yeah. It, oh, my God. Uh, this has been a really interesting, fun journey on this game. So um, I will say right now is it she didn't start off with this theme at all. Um, it actually started off as a 
as a light card game that a friend of mine actually was actually once again ed actually and showed me he'd come up with this game with this sort of um poker based uh poker based game and and i really liked it i played it i thought this is this is really fun it's 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 really well it's very it's very simple it's super teachable if you know what po- your poker hands already just have this concept of basically three rows of of cards you're playing cards into different rows and then you're trying to make the best combinations in those rows that you can basically that was the kind of as it started very basic premise of it and i figured he was really keen after he'd seen magnate and, and i think this would have been just after our kickstarter had had raised done a pretty good initial raise he said, well, look, uh, uh, you know, I play this a lot with my friends. We really like it. I think it's a great light game. Would you be interested in publishing it? And I said, yeah, actually, I would. I would like to publish this. Because partly I, I thought, well, this would just be a really cool experience, publishing something done by someone else initially. And it would be a great way to apply everything I'd learned in the process of making Magnate. And so it was a little bit of a, a, a partly I, I saw it as a funnily enough as a sort of retro, retro, retrospective after the fact practice project in that sense, because I thought, well, you know, when you're doing things the first time around, you're making all the stuff up as you go along. Because, you know, I I haven't worked previously for a board game publishing company. There's no way in which I've absorbed any on the ground experience. The only underground experience really from from has come from a bit of mentorship from my business partner, Louis, who's a manufacturer in the UK. Uh, He's been invaluable. He's he's, he's a huge amount of industry contacts, used to work for a big war games company, uh, knows a tremendous amount about the more physical production side of things. And I, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to do that. And then we set about doing something which was completely the reverse way that way I normally work, which was starting with a set of mechanics and then looking for a theme. Because I am, I'm a big theme boy. I like going, starting a theme first. I love simulationist kind of approaches. If only because I find it takes me in really interesting directions because it makes me go, how do I bring this thing to life? And I will find a way to make it work. And, and that will generally send me in a different path than if I'd, so I'd tried, tried to make a, an existing game in an existing genre. So this was all, all an opportunity also to do this reverse approach, which I thought would be really interesting. And we actually iterated through many, many, many different themes this game. So at one point, it was based on Russian dolls. Uh, another point, it was based on automated factory lines. Uh, it was based on multiple different kind of concepts of me trying to find a thematic fit. And the problem was, was the game that fundamentally had some really nice abstracted mechanics we couldn't find something that was like a really strongly natural theme fit. And I was like, oh, what could we, how could, you know, what, what can we do with this? What on earth can we, can, can we find as a theme? And I kept thinking, right, well, let's, let's draw up a, we did a, literally, Jar and I did this exercise. He's, he's my developer working on Magnate. He's a really, really good game developer. Uh, and he, he comes, he, he, we, we often, he comes around to my place and we physically work together to, on, on game development projects. And we literally put a big thing up on the wall and said, right, we need to find, something that exists in real life that you would assemble into pieces it's kind of more the sum of its parts when you put pieces together and you might want several ones but also the other criteria is that the bits can be interchangeable and they have different value based on the interchangeable bits and we were like right what things are there in the real world that fit that (laughs) which was a very like was like i was like We've got to find a theme fit somehow. And then I started thinking, I was thinking, well, we need something that's got soft edges. And machines won't work because machines plug together and they have to kind of like, if we're doing a factory line, the reason that failed was because it was like, yeah, but when you put this kind of factory robot next to this kind of factory robot, it's not going to make better or worse, is it? Like based on a poker hand type mechanic. It's got to be something that's got soft edges. And then I was like, well, what has soft edges? And I'm like, what kind of concepts have soft edges, don't they? And then I was like, oh, 
<laughs> and then just suddenly it all came together at once. I was like, oh my God, what if it's a game? What if it's about games? What if these individual are game themes? And what if each one is about like an archetypal concept from the world of games, like an archetypal theme or mechanic? And then what if at the end of the game, you pitch the game that you come up with? And then we were just like, uh, that's that the game had no social element before that, like party element at all. Like, well, screw it, let's do it, let's try it. And um, and then it, again, it was one of those one moments where it just it all came together after all of that staring at the board for hours. And so we set about it. And I suddenly thought, well, this this could potentially be really cool because something about light card games, in my view, is that they either do something that, that they're just really good at doing a kind of abstracted family fun, or uh, something I've seen more more recently as well. If I think about some of the small box games. You know, they sell quite a lot on their art. And I figured, well, oh, well okay, well, let's let's go to town with the art. Let's have 75 cover art level execution pieces of card art. And let's just do it. And let's have them all different. And originally the plan was going to be they're all going to be by different artists. So every single one a different artist. And then I, I scaled back a bit from that because that was insane. But it was really cool to, it, it suddenly felt like the, the project was just cohering together. Because I, it's funny you say this, I had had this thinking about, there must be a way to make a game about games before. And then suddenly it was like it came together and was like, well, this, this could be our chance to do that in a way that is celebrating of it. Doesn't require us to get too stuck into the simulationism yet. Because frankly, I feel like I'm not even in the position to do the simulation of that yet. And actually on the way, one of the things we came up with was the idea that the, in the which I might still have a play with, um, in the original concept of this, what we decided was that the reason it would be called board games, the board game, the card game, is because we were going to create, and I was going to put the, submit this to BGG and everything, but I figure there might be this against their terms and conditions. I was going to create a fake game called Board Games the Board Game, which was going to be a mid-90s ultra-heavy Euro that was like 4.9 out of 5. And, and then this was going to present itself as the card game version of this. And so I was going to invent like an absurd backstory and we're going to have a cover mocked up for it and, and go for that. Because I think it could just, and we might do it anyway on the Kickstarter campaign just for a bit of fun. I don't know. Just for the hell of it, but but but, and then that's that's how the title actually came. It didn't come from. Uh, they just thought like, well, that would be fun. It was it's just a stupid title, but also that's a bit of fun. But also like it could be based have this sort of weird internal store backstory as well. Because again, like card games don't do that. And I figured, why not? Let's have a rich universe <laughs> that we're going to create to go along with this as well. Oh man, that would that would have been so funny. Uh... <laughs> But yeah, probably against the terms and conditions. <laughs> I thought I don't want to anger the BGG mods too much at this stage where I but feel course, like I'm not in a position to get away with it yet. Of course, now you've left it open that you could someday make board games the board game, uh, the board game version of the card game. <laughs> exactly. Do it in reverse. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Rather than that, exactly. Because I'd figured that I, I just had this feeling, I don't know, the last um, five years maybe, just encountering loads of card game versions of board games and thought, well, I think it would be the perfect thing to send up. Like that feels like that's part of the culture. So, um, oh yeah, oh yeah. Le let's let's do that. Oh yeah, it's like when I, when I remembered I, I reviewed <laughs> Castles of Burgundy, the dice game. I'm like, wait a minute, Castles of Burgundy <laughs> is already a dice game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And then they made the yeah. card game. Also, actually, yeah. I think the card game came first. But <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a thing that has become endemic. And and for those listening, if you go to the the website for it, what's the website called? Uh, boardgamegame.com. Boardgamegame.com. You'll see some of the art there, and it's definitely very obvious what games are being referred to. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not exactly subtle in its uh, ribbing. 
It is not subtle, no, because uh, and that's something that was was a great joy in the art process. One of the most, perhaps as an art process, perhaps equal to Magnate in its in its size, because we've got lots of variety of medium media in Magnate, but we don't have the sheer volume of really great illustrative art um, that we have in this game. It's like a different scale, and we we spent ages like trawling through loads of things. Like at each for each card, we've taken about seven or eight different. Looked at titles in that genre and gone right. Which is the what is the most archetypal treatment of this? How do we bring this in and work through them? And thought, well, we could go with this one. Like sometimes you'd find one that was maybe more famous, but actually somehow weirdly, it, even it was a more famous game, wasn't the archetypal image of it. And then others you'd find you'd like, oh, I, in my in my head this game looks like this, but actually it looks like something else. But 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 um, yeah, and, and just but we spent ages that, and we thought, well, we've got to make these illusions pretty clear because that is part of the joy of it is that you will go through it and go. Oh, I know what that is uh, for the for the cognoscenti. Um, and certainly when we took that to UK Games Expo where it had its first public launch, that was what people were just coming by the sand and picking cards up and going, oh my God, that's Scythe. Or like, oh, oh that's, oh, well, huh, that's terraforming Mars. You know, different different people would be picking up cards and pointing at them. And it was just like, it was, and we, it means we can have fun with the flavor text on all the cards as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious exactly what the, how the game plays. Like what is it, mm. what is it turn? Is it a simple like, draw a card play a card kind of thing so the way that works is this is that you get uh at the beginning of the game you get you get given three cards idea cards that are 120 idea cards in the deck in total um not all of them have complete art because some of them are text and symbols for the mechanics for example instead uh, which was also really fun because i had to work out okay how do we classify about 30 game mechanics and i was a bit influenced by that book by uh jeff engelstein and a little bit oh, of looking yeah. at a BGG and thinking, okay, can we make super condensed versions of these that most people will understand? Which is a, there you go, uh, which was going to be a right really in front of me. <laughs> gonna, it's going to be a really, really interesting challenge. Anyway, the, the way the game plays, 120 idea cards. There's eight suits of 15 cards, and what you're doing is is you're playing not rows of five as in poker, but rows of four, and you've got three rows of four, and each row represents a different game that you're trying to make. The top game has to be your highest ranking game. The middle game has to be your middle ranking game. The bottom game has to be your lowest ranking game. And then each turn, you're drawing three cards from the idea deck and you're playing two somewhere into your grid of, uh, of one, one of your three games. Now, you can move the card in, cards inside the rows as much as you like to make combinations, but, you, but once locked in, you can't move the cards between rows. So then what you're trying to do is you're, you're just trying to, over the course of six turns, which are played all played simultaneously, people play their cards face down and then they reveal... You're trying to make the highest value combinations that you can out of that. Along with it, we have the development cards, which is a deck of, uh, you get given five of them at the beginning of the game. They are randomized. You can never have more than two of any, any, and you have to swap them out until you have a maximum of two of any one type. And these things are basically things that let you screw with the, with the cards you've got. So they let you things like increase numbers up or down, like your hype, what we call the hype rating, which is the number in the top right corner of the card. Um, or they let you change the suit of the card, or they let you move cards between rows, like as a one-off effect, this kind of thing. So that what you can do is it adds this quite a substantial dimension of uh, manipulation to the poker ranks beyond just the random cards that you get. And again, play all played simultaneously. One of the cards you're given, so it's actually six development cards you're given, you're always given a pitch card. You can choose as one of your six, because you get six, there are always six rounds, the way the maths works. You play your pitch card against one of your rows. Then at the end of the game, you have a minute to pitch that game to everyone else sat at the table. You have to come up with a title for it, and it's got to include every single one of the ideas in the rows. Every one of the ideas in that row. Interesting. And, 
And then so what that means at the end is, is that then, uh, and then what happens is there are two completely independent victory conditions. So one is we call the most money victory. So you become the wealthiest designer, which is having the best overall score. And the way the scoring works is a kind of scoring matrix where the top row, so your top row is called, uh, okay, so I'll go through what, what, the, what the rows are called, because this is important for the scoring. The top row is called your bloated masterpiece. <laughs> the middle row is called, a reli is called your reliable gateway game. And then the bottom row is your mass market cash cow. And the bottom row has the highest potential to make money, but you have your but it has to be your least complex game, which is what the ranking is called. So the top row has to be your most complex game. And if you get the order wrong and you release your most complex game to the mass market, you instantly go bust and you lose. So what you're trying to do is work out how you can maximize the top. You want to have the biggest, highest scoring ranking bottom row that you can without it ever becoming higher ranking than the rows above it. So, the, and you're playing this kind of, you're playing this off chicken tail. And there's a scoring grid which basically weights different scores for different suits on different rows. And then that, and that's how the scoring works for the money side. So you make more money or not based on, based on, based on that. And that's how players then compare who has won. And then the other victory is a straight up vote. So people just vote on which they thought was the best concept. And we call this the, uh, what, like the best game award or the Spiel de Jar. Probably won't really get away oh, with sure, putting yeah, that in yeah. the text to decide which one is best. So you can potentially walk away and you can be both the richest designer and the most critically acclaimed. Uh, normally that doesn't happen, but uh, but that's kind of what, what can happen at the end. And the reason we find this, and that's why on the website, I decided to put this fake review that I thought I would write for the game <laughs> as if someone had, some, some a reviewer had written on it, like a paragraph taken from something. It was because to me, it was like, people are going to think this is a complete Frankenstein of a game because it's clearly a fusion of like of a party game with a kind of tactical, light, but kind of thinky, crunchy card game. But actually, why not? Because actually, they do contribute a bit to each other, because there's something really fun about the fact that you're trying to optimize one thing, and it's making the pitch harder and harder, because you're like not putting the things that would be easy to pitch together, you're putting what scores well. So it creates, it sort of forces it, then you'll be like, oh god, I, better, I guess I best pitch this one then. Oh, oh no, what have I done? It's now, I've, I've now got uh, I don't know, I've got like meeples, but I've got zombies and I've got, I don't know, I've also got like uh, 19th century industry and the Romans. How am I going to make all this work? And so so, so it, it, it's, it's quite funny in the way that they kind of, they have this soft interaction between each other, the two parts of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are quite different. And that was sort of also deliberate because I figured, well, I'm always short of like a good filler game that I know will keep everyone happy because I, I, there's such a wide variety of people where you've got people who, you know, really love the thinky crunchy stuff and people who love the more social things. I figured let's give everyone a taste of everything in the, in, in at least, at least for a little bit of one game night is kind of how I felt about it. So even though it's a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a crazy blend, I thought let's do it anyway. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds charming. Oh, and thank you. I, I wonder if there will ever be any games made inspired by one of the games someone made in this game. That would be I wild. Really, I would be wild. I really hope that would be. I think that that to me would be the ultimate tribute to the, to this game. Would be if someone actually played it and went, "Hang on a second. And they saw a collection of ideas. They had a pitch they really liked, and they were like, "I'm going to make this." And then they made a great game based on that. That would be amazing. But what I'm really impressed by is people come up. It's really interesting seeing how many people do things. People who are not so familiar with, like, who are not really, really on the inside. So maybe they play a few games, but they don't tend to play that many. Will tend to pitch things that sound more like stories. They'll just talk a lot about the narrative of the game world because that's the kind of easier bit. But when you play with people who are like really in it, like whether they're reviewers or they're really in the world of game development and design, 
what's really cool is they sometimes come up with things that are super plausible concepts. Like randomly, one time Jai came up with one. I think one that sticks in my mind is he was like, he was like, it was something like um, anthropomorphic animals plus realistic resources, but then also like dungeon crawling and something else. And then he was like, the game is called Underdell, and it's set in the root structure underneath the tree from Everdell. And then started describing it, and I was just like, holy shit. Are Starling Games listening? This is awesome. Like, it was really just like, I can totally believe this. I was like, and he started describing, oh, yeah. And of course, the, naturally, the people in this one, this expansion, are moles. And I was like, well, of course they are. Of course they're moles, under, living in the root structure of the ever tree. Oh, what? This is so great. Like, we can't make it, but like some, but Starling could. Like, and that that's, you know, uh, so yeah, sometimes it, it, some, some really amazing stuff comes, comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, there, uh, there have been weirder inspirations for games. Like I, I'm, I always uh, think of Abandon All Artichokes, which was a name-inspired game. I don't know if you oh, heard yeah. that story. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, she came just, with that. Oh yeah, she came, came up with a bunch of alliterative names, and then oh yeah, as, a, as like a a daily, you know, it's like a daily design, design challenge thing, right? Challenge, yeah, yeah. And came up with a bunch of alliterative names and then picked that one and made a game out of it, not and knowing anything else about the game, which is, who knows? Who knows where people get, get their ideas? There you go. There you go. It's just such a good example. Yes, because I mean, the objective is of that game is to get rid of all your artichokes, isn't it? That's that's out of It's like a deck builder where you're trying to get rid of them. Right, right? yeah, yeah. That, that's how it works. So a complete inspiration based on an alliterative phrase. Yeah. Uh, right down into the heart of the mechanics of the game. Completely. Like, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it would be, I, yeah, you're right, weirder places. So it would be really cool to, um, <laughs> really cool to see that. And I think, yeah, I, I, that would be an amazing tribute. I'm curious, other than the pitching aspect of it, uh, mm. was there any other aspect of the game that was changed or modified based on when you found the theme? Yes. Uh, well, ah, that's interesting. So, um, was actually most of the other changes that had actually already occurred. So, originally, the game used poker style hands. It couldn't. It, it wasn't. It actually, couldn't play it up to up to up to six players. So, interesting. We say two to eight. To be technically accurate, the core experience is more like three to six, because three to six is the full experience. Two players, you can do voting, but obviously. The, just doesn't work voting right. with two people, and uh, and and when for seven to eight is technically a variant where where it's where which which where the variant is called board games, the board game, the card game, the party game, <laughs> in which in which in which you do it's purely pitching. So it's a it's a slightly more built on enhanced version of the pitching game, which we're still kind of testing at the moment. But yet most of the most of the changes we made before we even found the theme because we found that. We need to make it work more players with a reasonable number of cards. What, what was the what was the most efficient time we were going to have out of it? Was like originally there was there were things where there was a top row that was a different size, the bottom rows. All these kind of small streamlined changes uh, went down to four card suits from five card suits because the mass worked really nicely with eight suits as well, uh, which also is really cool because it means that you get you can get be quite high scoring relative to normal poker because obviously you've got possibility it's much easier to make to make flushes or straights or different things because you've got all these suits to work with a lot of time spent with the maths on that as you can imagine of like working out right what is the what is like the satisfying level where straight flushes are like this very rare thing but they actually do happen right yeah, and yeah. and they and they're achievable and you feel great when it happens you know but also not too cheap that it feels like every game is one with a straight flush which is a bit boring so it was like, and then working out like how we could stratify the probabilities uh, and the number of suits you would need to achieve that while also hitting player count. 
that sort of thing. Uh, the development cards as well, they were always there. Uh, rather than, well, they, they came in pretty quickly after the initial design. They changed a bit over time as well. Like we had, we had originally, we was like even wagering and some other uh, slightly unusual mechanics going on in them. And then we realized like, yeah, a lot of this stuff doesn't work. And the moment you, and one, two things that do not go are like poker hands and take that mechanics. <laughs> so the, the, the way that you could just be like, and I change your card and then you instantly lose everything was like, no, we, there's no way we can, we can bring any of that stuff in. Even if this is a very light game where people might even expect some take that elements. I'm like, no, we're not touching that with a barge pole. Like I'd much rather that the, the core of this is, is a fairly multiplayer solitaire. Uh, except for the end, which is like the absolute opposite, uh, rather than doing something where we where we start interfering with people, like it it, it just didn't work. It just, it just felt flat as well. So um, all of those things were kind of more just just a result of just iteration by just grinding playtesting. To be honest, do you have all the art uh, for that for the game yet, or are you still working on getting all the cards made? Everything is at sketch level at least already, okay. and it's we've been we've been producing that art since december so it's been a, and it's going to be a long while before we're done yet because you know just just the process of briefing it even of like looking through loads of games and being like right well how designing the composition to be like how are you going to capture all of the bits about this like one of my favorite cards for example and some of the compositions are very complicated my favorite ones is the cthulhu card because uh. that one is like got like there's this there's this guy reading this book that's like cursed. There's a ship that's got like a, a sea monster like devouring it. There's a there's there's a guy. There's a, there's like a 1930s detective with a gun running away from a temple. There's all these things like in this card art, and it's just like this. This is just literally a box cover, but it's going to be this on a bridge card. So we don't have it all yet, but I I'm going to be leaking out more and more of it. I think there's about ten pieces that are out there already publicly. I'll be leaking a little bit more as we as we approach the Kickstarter and holding a little bit back just for the surprise of when people open the box. I know I was very pleased to see on the website one of the cards previewed is certainly uh, influenced by Netrunner. So oh that made yes, me happy. <laughs> yes, yes. When we see that one, we're like, well, there's, there's there's only one game that we have to influence this one by. Yeah. Um, to the point where I I had to sit there thinking, I'm like. Did they actually get permission to use art from a particular card? And I had to look up that card. I was like, no, it's it's not. <laughs> it's different, but it definitely looks like Netrunner. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like that's something that's been really awesome. Is that people have sometimes gone like, what is? No, some of this art's actually from another game, right? And I'm like, nope, it's all <laughs> original. It's just all highly inspired by those things and deliberately very close to them. So, yeah, that was exactly one of those ones. We wanted that to look like a thing you would have said, I feel sure I've seen the Netrunner card that has this art on. and uh, Or I've seen the expansion box that has this on. and I, and, and, and but, but in fact, not be. You know, it was, was almost like very much the brief for, for most all of the cards, I would say, actually. Some of them are very direct illusions, like the Scythe one, as oh, you, yeah. which I think is on there, is obviously yeah. very, very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, we just decided to make the mechs kind of futuristic mechs rather than diesel punk mechs, basically. Right. Because we wanted, again, just put a little bit, teeny bit of distance, but also get Jacob, oh, I'm going to pronounce his name really horribly wrong. Is it Rokowski? I can't pronounce it correctly, but his art style was the really critical thing to get right in that picture, I think. Right, yeah, the palette and the shading and all that's exactly yeah, yeah. the same. Yeah. yeah. So what is, you, you just announced this a couple of days ago. What's the timetable look like for, for this game? Well, the dream scenario would be to get it onto Kickstarter before the end of the year. 
whether that will happen or not, I don't know. Uh, that's all dependent on uh, loads of other things. The biggest thing being, I don't want to put this on Kickstarter until Magnet has hit retail. So, uh, because I think, you know, we're a very small company, we need to ride that natural bump. So it could be maybe next year that, it, that this goes on Kickstarter rather than the end of this year. Um, it really depends on, on those things primarily. I also want to make sure that we've built up enough awareness about it. Because I think this is a game that potentially has a place in almost anyone's collection, uh, just as a lovely little object. And as something which I think, as I said, is, is for me, one of the reasons that we, we went with this approach with it was because I really wanted like what would be for me the perfect filler game. So I think that was why, you know, that's why we went down, down, down that approach with that. And I want to make sure that that people know it's out there but rather than just kind of, a, I don't want to be one of the things where we launch on Kickstarter and people go, oh, that's a really cool idea. Why didn't I hear about this beforehand? I would much rather people are like, oh yeah, I'm really excited to see this. I think it's cool. I'm on the mailing list. And then when we know we launch, we can launch pretty big because I think, it, again, it has, I think it has a lot of potential. So you got these two games, and uh, you we were talking before, and I know from cryptic tweets you've sent out, you definitely have other games that are yes. various stages on the pipeline. What are you willing to say about uh, any of those? So what I will say is this. I will tell you three very, very, very broad things that we're working on. So one is that I'm working on a war game. Uh, this awesome. is something that, I, that I've wanted to do for a very long time. I, you know, I, I, when I was 13, I guess one of the part, part of the story I admitted is that like many people, I went through a, a very big Warhammer phase and, and I, and I so much that I, I never regard it as part of the board gaming story because I played that game so little. I tend to do was buy the miniatures, drag myself across the floor to paint them, play it like twice. And then that was it. Um, and which I think is probably a lot of people's story, but I think the, the concept of war game, particularly because I, you know, one thing I used to do a little bit as a child was it was playing this napoleonic era war games with my dad i really wanted to make something that was like a like a, a con more conflict game i love those kind of games on desktop you know i love civ 4 and for me the, the 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 war bit is probably the most exciting bit of that you know I, I i really wanted to make a war game so we're making something i'm trying to make something that feels that does justice to my favorite war game which is probably memoir 44 that which has by the way been a very recent discovery for me that's been absolutely brilliant during lockdown here in the uk we i just basically my dad and I finally got it out. And there's a sort of Sunday evening tradition. We, we played Memoir 44 and we've played about 50 times now, just because every week we play it. And that was, that was really great as a kind of very light, but very thematic game that just kind of gives you just, it just does what it does really well. And except for the slightly arduous setup for the, set, for the, for the amount of game length it is, it's, you know, for me, really great at giving that nice mixture of bit of luck, bit of tactics. And I thought, well, could we make something maybe a little bit heavier that has lovely miniatures that would be something that would be also a bit different and so I'm working on, on that. So I've been doing a lot of research into playing loads of different war games, trying to understand them. Uh, one I've got to play at UK, James, UK Games Expo, which is really good, was which I wanted to just give a shout out for because I think it's a hugely underrepresented game. And I want to see more of it is This War Without an Enemy by a guy called Scott. Oh, hang on. I've got his name. It's Scott. Is it Scott Rogers? He's a, basically a Birmingham-based designer. And it's this game that is like being published by Nuts Publishing. It's a French company. It is a, a game about the English Civil War. And a lot of those historical games, they tend to look like absolute crap. Like they don't bother a lot with the art design. And this game, someone just went to town on the art. Like apparently he told me that the graphic designer of the game went to a library in Paris, specifically so he could scan in tons of unused 17th century engravings to, to use as the card art for everything. And I was just like... Whoa, this has got, and again, I think they've, they've only produced quite a small number of units. It's really hard to get hold of, but 
I played a demo of it, thought it was great, uh, and a lot more accessible than a lot of other historical games. One I'm really keen to get hold of, but again, only exists in small quantities, unfortunately. Uh, which makes no sense to me, given the amount, of, the amount they've clearly spent on the art production. But yeah, so it's kind of these recent things that have really inspired me to 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 to, to get into that. So I'm working on a war game. Also working on a dungeon crawler as well. This one has come from Jaya, and I can't really say much more about it than that for now. But uh, it's that one again. I've been doing something a bit different, and that's been really interesting because because I think that's been greatly inspired by I think for me a discovery of a lot of richer co-op games. So Jaya and I play a lot of um, Eon's End, mm-hmm. and we've got really, really into that, and we've played now five of the boxes or something of it. And that's been also been good during this time period, not seeing many other people. One advantage has been I've been able to, rather than trying loads of different games, I've been able to go really deep on just a few games, just to really understand them in a way that I think one misses when sometimes it only gets to play, like you're playing a new thing every week. And that's going to be, I think, good fun. And then the last one is probably a Magnate expansion, depending how well Magnate does. So it's not going to be a huge one, but we've got quite a lot of different things, including some concepts like level three buildings. So it'd be like a little bit like one of each of like a mega mall that takes up two spaces and a whole load of like really substantial buildings. Because in my very original early Lego prototype, we had some like monster skyscrapers and I would love to bring in things like that that feel like a very natural evolution, especially with like maybe with like a randomizable downtown. I've also got some slightly more bananas ideas for an asymmetric player expansion to Magnate, but we will have to see where <laughs> that one goes, I think. Awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to look into that war game you mentioned. What was the name of it? You know, this war, this without... war without an enemy. The, the, the designer is, is, is he's really, really into his 18th century, oh, sorry, sorry, um, uh, 17th century uh, history. He knows, he really, really, really knows his stuff. And I happened to be at the time I discovered it, which I think was the perfect timing, listening to, listening to Simon Sharma's History of Britain, and I just got to the English Civil War. And that's actually a quote from one of the commanders whose best friend, he was like a, he was like a parliamentarian whose best friend was a royalist. And he and he wrote in his letters and was like, I really hope, you know, I don't, you know, effectively, I really wish this wasn't happening this in this war without an enemy. Uh, and that, you know, he would he said that but obviously if we have to fight, we have to fight and all of this, this, this kind of thing. And really capturing the the fervent, the like the the crazy time that it was in Britain where, you know, but house set against house, so to speak, and mm-hmm. brother against brother. So he's he's really captured that. But he's done it with some really just cool little design concepts and things that he has really, really, uh, really done very well there as well. Definitely one that I had only randomly. Um, sorry, Scott Moore. That's his name. Sorry, it's Scott Moore. Is the is the chap in in Birmingham who's designed this? And yeah, definitely worth a look. Awesome. Have you had a chance to play Memoir Forty Four Overlord yet? No, oh yes. Funnily enough, that was my very first introduction to it. Oh wow! Uh, I I played it at the Ludicrous. So Nick, uh, who runs the Ludicrous Game Cafe in Croydon, which I will just you know, shout out to Ludacrist, which is close to me, is, according to Gamma, at least, was in 2020 the best retail store in the world. Uh, he runs this place, and he runs a D-Day, annual D-Day event, where for, for D-Day, he plays an Overlord version with six versus six game. We put all the tables in the cafe together, and we, we play it. And that was my first introduction to it. And that was, you know, he's got war film music in the background, <laughs> all these Memoir 44, like, real hardcore fans, and me, just bit, I was just like, oh, this is so great. Like this is this is everything I wanted like wargaming as a child to be. I, I'm not like drowning in a big reference book. There's just about enough complexity to be interesting, but like there's enough 
like just sheer nar- narrative uh, thematic fun here oh it was great let's move on and talk about your podcast because i know you have started one up and it is about specifically producing games and uh yes how's that going uh it's going really well it's been a really interesting experience i i, I started it because i i just really enjoyed podcasting in terms of as a guest so I figured, oh, this might be quite fun to do to do one. Especially, I felt like there was really missing in the market one about the product side of things, because there's lots of really great game design podcasts. And I was like, well, there's there's no point. There's no point me copying that. You know, I think about you know, uh, I think about what Mike, uh, who, what, why is that the one? I think I think I, mm-hmm. I often get his title wrong. I think I think about what he does. His conversations are so fluid; they're really great. I think about uh, Ludology does a really good job at kind of a more introductory overview type thing. I like Gate Barrett's one as well. Uh, but I felt like they're all like quite design orientated, and they're not coming at things from a more insider businessy perspective, and uh, and really focusing on that product side. Because to me, I still think people don't really have a good understanding of what product is. They, the, to me, they still think about it meaning, oh, you mean the physical box and bits? And I'm like, no, like the product is the totality of the experience in relation to a price point. So it's it's really like still a, a very nascent area in terms of the way people think about things, at least in, in board games, um, even though it's a lot more mature and in, in obviously in industries where there's a lot of money at stake. So I thought that perspective would be good and I could have really nice long conversations with people who would be the kind of people that people don't think about in board games. So the people like, for example, um, you know, someone who designs like David Digby had on just designed solo modes or Andrew Navarro, the ex head of studio who just had on as well for um, Fancy Flights. You know, I've got a sales agent that we're talking to soon. We're talking to lots of people who are and manufacturers, people who manufacture things, people who make miniatures that don't make games. Um, people who are there's such a variety of people in, in that space. I figured it would be really cool to, to to do that and learn about how they fit into the broader part of the industry and see what their perspective on what works or doesn't work in games is. Because it's often you've often got very very different views on what's important because of people who are all coming from a different place. Yeah, because I mean I think the perspective is from uh, in, in this is kind of my perspective also as like man it'd be really cool to design a game and then all the all the production and publishing aspect is like all the garbage you have to do to make that happen (laughs) (laughs) right yeah yeah oh man i don't want to i don't want to deal with that but uh i'm curious how the response has been uh for the subject it's it's been very good i think i'm pleased with the list of numbers we don't have absolutely massive numbers we don't have like a huge audience yet but I've been very pleased that, you know, we've had episodes with sort of 200 listeners, uh, which for me, I'm, I'm really happy with bearing in mind, we're obviously very at the early stages of this. And um, people seem to really like it. I think it's because it is just a bit different. I think it's, it's, it is it's is quite fresh. And I think the people who are attracted by it are the people who are really interested in just because they're just curious about the subject mm. uh, or they're very interested in self-publishing because I think it has a, a big thing for me is that I thought, well, for all the practical value of this is going to be very educational for anyone interested in publishing games. And, you know, with the huge explosion in Kickstarter, there's so many more people publishing games than there used to be. And, it, and I figured there would be a lot of value in, you know, hearing from an industry professional, someone like Andrew, for example, he's talking about art direction. I mean, I just learned so much from that episode. And I learned so much after having done Magnate. I'm like, oh my God, if I had followed some of what he was talking about and we had gone back and done that, loads of that would have been even easier if I'd, you know, known that at the time. And I think uh, there's a huge potential for, 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 I think, for, for just learning from these different people who precisely because they have this experience that's got nothing to do with game design. And, you know, especially by now, the expectation is that your game is going to 
look really good and have good components, mm, right? Where maybe yeah. 10 years ago you could get away with something a bit more pedestrian. It's very yeah. hard to do that now. It's it's very hard to do that now. And it is just like, the thing is, I keep seeing this, have conversations with people on Twitter about this, is that for me, what it looks like is it looks very much like the film industry, which is that what happened was over time, they started moving towards a model where they would, they were losing so much money, I think, in the like the 90s, that they realized they need to move towards a model of a smaller number of bigger things that all could become very successful with very high production values and budgets. And that, that was more profitable. And where you, especially when you could build up an entire franchise or a whole world, rather than trying to do lots of individual one-off films all at a medium level of budget. And I think that same thing is happening in board games. Now, I think the good news from the point of view of the variety that's out there is, in the same way that there's still loads of really interesting independent films, that's still the case, but the market has bifurcated towards a small, a large number of independent films that are really interesting, and then a lot of, and then mostly occasional big budget films by people like Christopher Nolan that are also excellent, but mostly big budget films that are very broad in nature. I kind of think by by game, I think the good news for board games is by their nature, I never see them getting quite as mass market as that, which means that I think we won't see quite. I, I, I like to hope that and like to think we won't see quite the same level of um, hopefully absolutely soulless commercialism in the, the production of some of those things, because I think that to some extent that's already happened by the companies that just want to milk games that are almost 100 years old, is what I will say about that. But, but I do think what it means is, is that we're going to see relative to the size of the industry, even if there are more games still being produced in the future than there are now, relative to the amount of dollars there are, it concentrated in a smaller number of games that are bigger budget and have to have higher production values and more marketing behind them. So I think given that, I think people should get quite prepared to get quite realistic now about the fact that, yeah, they're going to need to look good because mm. if they don't look good, they're just not going to sell. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring in like film because I see it as there's this cycle when you look at the history of film between mm. you have you have lots of really big advancements and experimentation, and then that gets captured by big studios or big companies, and then it becomes less and less original and interesting, and then you have a break-off, right, where you have mm, indie people, yeah. and they rebel, and they push it forward, and then it slowly gets recaptured again, and then it breaks off, right? Because you see... Um, yeah, that's a good point. You see tons of uh, innovation and stuff in like in early film in like the teens and twenties, nineteen teens yeah. and twenties, um, and then that morphs into the studio system, and then uh, around the late fifties, early sixties, you get a whole bunch of really, uh, uh, or in the forties in France, uh, and then in, in America, uh, I'd, I'd probably say late fifties, early sixties, you get these really bold experimental movements. And then by the 80s, that gets swallowed up again. And then you get a little bit of a yeah. rebellion once video, right? Video, the, the technology barrier comes down uh, when video cameras come. And then it gets swallowed up. And then uh, we're, I don't know, we're kind of in an in intermediary state, I think, right now. Do you know, I think it's a really good point because the, the thing that made me think about that was Netflix. Rint mm -hmm. is a very recent example of this. Yeah, where that's true. Yeah. Right, they're producing a lot of stuff that was really weird and quite interesting and cool. And for me, one of the one of my favorite shows that came out last few years was Maniac. And oh, I kept thinking yes. about how right, so good. And I kept thinking about how like I just can't imagine even on HBO producing this. 
it's just something that's like a bit they might do maybe but just like it, certainly it it seemed like and i also had this like sadness and thinking i wonder if this is one of the last things we'll see from netflix that makes me go this is kind of really clearly has big budget behind it it's very interesting and original it's moving and like it's rare that that many things that that tv series come along like that, that too often yeah and i feel like we've been going through that with netflix but i just get this vibe in the last couple of years that that's already on the crescendo there's a very there's definitely them. there's definitely a netflix feeling right all the yeah. shows have now yeah yeah right they have kind of i don't know what it is but a similar vibe and it's like oh yeah. i feel like it's been homogenized a bit um yeah yeah but of course and, and maniac it, maniac was made possible if i remember correctly that's the same guy who did true detective and I felt like oh, Maniac, is it? Maniac was like the reward he got for True Detective, you know, taking off because it was, oh. you know, season one at least was really good. I think it's the same. I think it's the same guy. Oh, yeah. interesting. I had no idea. I had no idea. Isn't it the same director who's doing the new Bond film? Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Kerry, is it Kerry, Kerry, Kerry jo- Fuji, Fung- it's a, like Fuji- a Japanese last Japanese, name, I think. Yeah. Something I can't like remember. That. I can't remember his name. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. See, this is. I read about the Bond thing. Now, 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 then he got a Bond film. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So I think what's so fascinating about this is that you're right. Is that you? Well, it seems to me like it's a natural, as you said, it's a kind of a natural process. Partly because what happens is, is that you know, even looking at it somewhat less cynically, people look at it and go, "Well, okay. Well, we're trying to work out what works, what's good, what's consistently good." And the problem is, is you kind of. It's sort of it's it's the it's the the beginning of the end is the moment you work work out what that is. Because it's like, well, we now know what this, how to capture the fire in a bottle, and the fire kind of in is is now going to gradually go out, because it's like we've we've captured it and we know how to repeat it, and so now we're just going to repeat it, and 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 so you, I think, in this pattern, you get this interesting crest where there's some really good things that are made that are just great, even though they're quite good budget and they're not so that adventurous, they're just very well executed, and then eventually yeah. that becomes, well, okay, now let's repeat that thing again, and it's like, ah, uh, well, but. It's like there's something that goes off, I think, in terms of the originality. I suppose the less cynical way of looking at it is that when it becomes more hom- homogenized, it's it's not like the boldness or, or originality that's being honed. It's the craft portion of it that's being yes. honed in. Yes. Right? Because it's not it. like bad movies were made in the U.S. in the 50s in the, in the height of the studio system. Yeah. There are lots yeah, of yeah, great yeah. movies that were made. Oh, yeah. They yeah. just weren't necessarily as rebellious or even if they were they had to be in very more subtle ways right to get past the censors and all that the the 50s in, in america is you know I, I studied so i studied film film aesthetics as my master's degree at university oh wow and and the 50s is like a period where you've got this incredibly rich construction of mise-en-scene in american films which has like really reached a peak of craft in terms of this beautiful composition that's all like oh, subtly blocking, symbolic in ways. The blocking, like the intricate yeah. blocking they would do in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was like really the craft was continuing to advance exactly while other elements were, were were not. And I think that's where, yeah, there's like a, it's a false dichotomy to be like, oh, commercial and not commercial. It's more like, it's something much more subtle going on about how, how things develop in terms of craft taking over perhaps from originality, which seems to be more of the dance going on. Yeah, because I'm seeing, you know, Again, the cynical view is like, oh, all the all the big board games are just to push plastic, right? They're just to push miniatures. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like the user experience of your non-minis board game, right? In terms mm. of 
the a lot of times the ease of play, the mm-hmm. icons, the graphic design is at a much higher yeah. level than it used to be. Oh God, yeah. Like I think this is the this is the thing about you know the way the games have changed is that when I think about it, I'm like, well, it is like ten to even to ten years ago, they are just better in loads of ways. And it's ways like that that they're better. Mm-hmm. It's like specifically like in in things like 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 usability, speed, streamlining. And I think the very fact you know, to bring the conversation back a little bit, to, you know, when we talked about earlier about the about euros euro designs and kind of the the two forms you talked about here, the kind of the economic euro and the baroque euro, is that it seems to me in general like a lot of things have become very efficient at delivering a particular kind of thing, experience, but are not. Yeah, they're not innovating much in it, but they're very good at delivering that very particular kind of experience with that. And I would say at the moment, it would seem to to me, at least it seems like the Baroque Euros are definitely ones more in the ascendancy. They're probably really delivering on that. What you talked about, I think, is a great way to encapsulate it, which is like it's the, the pleasure of the mastery of game system, mm-hmm. um, but probably unlike less likely to do slightly quirky, mad things that might push the game in a slightly more new direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, you know, it, it's never... The narrative that we're saying is never that simple, right? There's always no, going to be experimentation. No, 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 There's no, no, always no. going to be big bloated messes. Uh, it's just kind of kind of trends, right? It's just, just interesting yeah. to look at. Yeah, uh, completely. Yeah, when you brought up film history, I always think of like, well, board games, in terms of like where we are in film history, we're like in 1918. That's, that's always been my mindset. Oh, like we're just at the beginning. Like we just, I think, I think there's so much more even mechanically just to explore that hasn't been found yet in games and experimentation and new experiences. Like to me, like, you know, figuring out like the Euro game revolution of like, oh, here's all this mechanical stuff. That's mm-hmm. like, we just figured out cross cutting. <laughs> right? uh, interesting. I don't know. I, it, I think so. I'm I'm hoping it's proven true over the you know the next decades. You just made me think a little bit about my conversation I recently had on the podcast uh, with Matthew Dunstan. It's not up yet, so there's no way you could listen to it yet. But um, we, we were talking about he was talking about his process of design. He's a chemist, and he was talking about I think it's something like thirty games published, and he was telling me about how for him it feels sometimes like when he the way he thinks about it is as the process of design is as discovery. So he thinks like these mechanics are there and they're out there and we just have to find them. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. And, and especially what you're saying about like, we're discovering this technique. It's like things in the rear view mirror that look like in filmmaking, like, well, look, that was kind of always there as a possibility. And then we, we didn't make it so much as we found it. And I think there might, if, if indeed that is where we are, it makes me wonder like, well, wow, what's, what's ahead then in terms yeah. of discovery of what we might, we might, we might find if we really are at, only at the only in nineteen eighteen at this point. Yeah, let me throw out to you my idea that I think I keep I keep talking about this. I think it's going to be if it's not maybe it won't be the thing in the future, but I think it's highly mm. underutilized, and that is independent wind conditions. I think it's oh. vastly unexplored. Okay, go on. Not having one winner and everyone else's losers, but everyone wins or loses based on their own independent criteria. And the only game I've seen, I I think the only game I've played that does it is Fog of Love. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, interesting. That you has could to have happen, both yeah. players win or one or neither win the game. It's really that's really interesting. There there is a design that I've been working on that actually has that element in it. Ooh. Interesting enough, it's a game. It's not in our main pipeline at the moment because it's it feels like it's so far away. I need to do so much more work on it, bringing it together. But it's a it's a it's a I guess it's somewhat not quite as it's not quite as adventurous as that because it is a co-op 
but it has but it isn't just like traitor type mechanic it is like multiple different independent victory conditions where different players that not all the players can win as well as there being a collective win that someone can individually win which i guess is a little bit like something like dead of winter but but it's uh but but again without a traitor mechanic really i i think you're right in some ways it seems like it, like it could be quite a logical evolution of where we are because if i think that within let's let's take the baroque euros again or like a bigger euro game some extent where a lot of what we're doing there might be some player inter- player interaction but a lot of what we're doing is the master ourselves of the system if that if you if you say that's what's kind of part of the fun is it ultimately the fun even to go as far as it's my own battle with the system it's right. less and yeah, less yeah. about you know, and, and we're we're you know we're interacting. We are kind of together as a, as a as a group of players. We're interacting with each other and we're shaping each other's games. But we're still not necessarily winning or losing together. We are winning or losing independently. I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I, I, yeah. I certainly agree with you that it seems really underutilized. Yeah, and, and I've, I've yet to play it. I really want to play it. I know Oath does not that. I just talked in in two episodes ago with Dan Throw, and he was talking ah. about Oath and about how there is a single winner of any given game, but what you do in the previous game influences how the next game that you play with that box of oath plays out, um, Mm. which is somewhat adjacent to that idea. So Mm. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to, I don't think it'll be like a revolution, but I think as a thing that we haven't yet fully explored, certainly I I think that's, that's the pet mechanism I'd like to see more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. No, I think there's a lot of potential there. I think yeah. I honestly think there's a huge amount of potential there. But yeah, I'm excited to see where board games go. Like it's it's something new all the time. I'm I'm very, yeah. I am optimistic I, about it for sure. I, I I do think we certainly do live in. I I do genuinely we do live in a bit of a golden age, and I do feel like we will look back on this period. And sometimes when people were saying, "Oh God, there's just so many things coming out." I can't keep up. They'll be thinking, "Oh God, that was actually great!" Like it was just like this, <laughs> this, this landslide of good stuff all the time that was cool, like and new, and, and made me think differently. Like, uh, and actually, we'll look back on that as that we why, why we're so upset by the idea of being swamped by excellent things. So it does, it does feel very, very fertile somehow, and I think that's that's just a really cool space to be in mm-hmm, for sure. All right, that's everything I had to didn't ask you about. Super exciting. Uh, for those who uh, are interested in Magnate, pre-orders are still open for that, right? Yes, they, we're still selling pre-order copies. You can buy them directly through the backer kit. Just click on the Kickstarter link where it says pre-order, and you can you can buy them from us that way. Yeah. And that's at uh, what, NailerGames.com? Yes, uh, you can also find the link there as well. That's at NailerGames.com. That's mostly got uh, episodes of Producing Fun and my blog and a little bit of extra information about Magnate. Um, I think we talked about there's already website we mentioned for boardgamegame.com for board games the board game the card game and then uh yes if you also go to nailer games if you want to listen to the podcast you can find links there so we've got it on anchor it's available on spotify apple Podcasts, all the usual places as well if you go looking for it yeah and i also reviewed it a while ago uh, and you can go to uh, the thoughtful gamer and read the review there i quite enjoyed it thanks again james for coming on the podcast this was super interesting i had a, a blast talking with you likewise this was tremendous fun and if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that uh, i think the best way is probably twitter to be honest if you just go to at nailer james or just just contact me if, if you want to use email just through the website nailergames.com has a contact form uh, it is mostly just me although i do have a kind of team of different people who are contractors so it will be me reading your email directly if you email me from there so please do drop me an email at uh 
on the contact page of nailergames.com as well. Excellent. And if you want to hear more from me or read more, as it were, go to thethoughtfulgamer.com. If you could like and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, that always helps with getting more eyes and ears on the podcast. And if you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. We greatly appreciate all support there. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, mostly Twitter, honestly. Of the three social media (laughs) sites, that's the one I use the most. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye.